Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we will conclude our conversation about the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy IV. Well, at least about the plot and characters. We'll see if we can wrap up our conversation on the themes. We got some big ideas to talk about. Hopefully we'll get into more and more of that on this one, but we have got to get to the end of arguably the first truly great story in the franchise. When last we left our heroes, we had just faced off against the honorable and awesome Rubicant, Archfiend of Fire, and now we're headed to the sealed cave in an attempt to retrieve the final dark crystal. You know, in the Final Fantasy IV DS version, where there is voice acting, they call him Rubiconte, which I'm mostly fine with. We've talked about, that's fine, sure. you pronounce it your way, yeah. we'll pronounce it our way, but that does sound a little bit like a salsa to me, so I don't know. <laughs> a little Rubicante salsa. Well, I suppose yeah, that's the Rubicante. hot version. It's a yeah. spe- that's the especially spicy version. Yeah, actually, maybe that's not so bad. Now, now see, you already turned me right back around on it. <laughs> For a fire fiend, that's a pretty solid pun to strike. So Golbez already has the other seven crystals. King Giat of the Dwarves thinks that what we need to do now, and our characters agree, is make sure we get our hands on the last crystal behind the sealed cavern. He's fairly certain, Golbez having shown the power he has, that Golbez will be able to break the seal if we don't get to it first. So we take the whatever doodad it is we need to open the cave, we go into the cave, we go through the cave, and the last monster here is a demon wall. And I'm pretty sure this is the first time the demon wall showed up. This freaking monster, it's one of those fights where there's a time limit and the wall inches closer and closer, and if you do not defeat the demon wall before it closes in on you, it will squish you and you just lose. I know it shows up again in Final Fantasy XV in the, uh, spoilers, in the World of Ruin. There's one of those caves you're always driving through, one of those tunnels you're always driving through in Final Fantasy XV. If you try to run through there, there's a freaking demon wall, and I turned around and left very quickly, certain I would be unable to defeat it. It also shows up again in Final Fantasy XII, or I should say prior to that in Final Fantasy XII, there is a demon wall, and I think maybe in the online games, but, you know, <laughs> it's hard right. to be conclusive about that. Especially with our inexperience with the online games. Right. So our heroes get to the crystal room before Golbez, and they retrieve the crystal. But then Golbez shows up, and he reasserts his mental dominion over Kane and forces Kane to hand over the crystal. Yeah, this is a scene that would is reminiscent later on with Cloud in a particularly important piece of materia, but yeah, when the guy who you've already been through this dance with the mind control and he's working through his story of redemption and while he's still trying to figure that out and get back on everyone's good side and you know our heroes are mostly fine with them but edge in particular has been like i don't know why we trust this guy we've been through all this stuff there's always got to be that calling out of the (laughs) the problem you know we talked about in civil war and marvel's civil war that's an issue when mind control is at stake and it comes back to bite our heroes. We all love Kane. We all want to love Kane because of going all the way back to that first scene where he sides with Cecil and decides, no, we're leaving the Empire. 
of this one, and we're siding with the little girl and the magic people. And so we want to root for this guy and to watch him turn on his friends again, hand the magical item that leads to ultimate power over to the big scary bad guy. It's heartbreaking. So King Giat thinks now that what we've got to do is we've got to unearth the lunar whale, except it's not on Earth, it's up beneath the ocean. We've got to unocean the legendary lunar whale, a craft that can take us to the moon. Before you do that, there are a couple small things you can do. Well, I say small. There are a couple side missions here you can do. You can make your way to the Sylvan Cave, which has some items if you're interested in that sort of thing. But the storyline part is that Yang, who last we saw in the Tower of Babel sacrificing his life to destroy the super cannon, is in fact alive and well and being taken care of by the sylphs. Uh, and he can be woken if you go and talk to his wife back in Fabul with a frying pan. So there's that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I love that. You just smack him upside his head. That'll do the trick. That's a nice little bit of comedy and a little bit of self-satire about the way these RPGs work. And you get the item to wake the person. And that's a fun little twist on it. This time it's not an herb. It's a frying pan. You can make your way to the Cave of Summons, also known as the Feymarch depending on your version, and this is where Rydia has been living for the last... It's only been, you know, a few weeks or maybe a couple months from our point of view, but it's been years from Rydia's point of view because she has grown from a little girl into a young woman. And this is where you can meet Asura, the queen of the summoned monsters, and Leviathan, the king of the summoned monsters. You can fight and defeat them and get them uh, as spells to summon. And you get some nice little storyline here about how fond they are of Rydia, but she really needs to rejoin the human world. If, in the land of the summons, you picked up the rat tail, calling back to Final Fantasy 1, you can swap that for adamantite, and then you can take the adamantite to the smithy in the dwarven underworld to uh, Kokol, the smithy, and he will forge for you the Excalibur. The other little side quest you can do is you can make your way back to Castle Baron. Here you can meet the spirit of King Baron. And if you've gone to the to the land of the summoned monsters, he will manifest as Odin. And you can fight and defeat King Baron and then summon him as Odin. So we had talked before in our episode about summoned monsters, how sometimes you're summoning the parents, the dead parents of some of our characters. There's Maduin from Final Fantasy VI and Seymour's mother from Final Fantasy X, Anima. Here we have King Baron manifesting as Odin. And we've also got Rydia can summon the Mist Dragon. So she's summoning her dead mother and the foster father of both Cain and Cecil. Heavy stuff. So our heroes need to pursue Golbez, who has opened the way to the moon with the eight crystals and the Tower of Babel. So they go back to Mycidia, and the elder there takes them to the Tower of Wishes, or the Tower of Prayers, depending upon your version. And from there, they are able to summon the Lunar Whale, an airship, but really, it's a spaceship. Totally a spaceship. Interesting note on that. One of the reasons why I've learned that they make that translation change is because that they were taking out any direct references to religion in the Super Nintendo version of the game for Western audiences. They were taking out, so like, Holy was renamed White as a spell. All that kind of stuff was changed, and so that's why it would be wishes instead of prayers, but 
That's not the biggest point of the thing you just mentioned. You mentioned a spaceship. In the shape of a whale. So we've talked about paradigm shifts in terms of floating continents and in terms of upgrading classes. This paradigm shift is one for the entire franchise and one that somehow I think some people still to this day are struggling to get over or get with or accept. This is an aesthetic much more associated with science fiction. We now have, as you put it, a spaceship. Why it's in the shape of a whale? Final Fantasy's weird, and we will talk a lot more <laughs> about that as we move forward here. It does sort of parallel the summon monster Bismarck, which is a giant whale that we would run into a couple times later in later games. And sometimes the Bismarck is a ship of some kind in later games. Right. So, but this is their first real... We, we talked about it. There's a robot in Final Fantasy One. There are science fiction elements in the second and third games as well. But this was a departure. From here on out, Final Fantasy Four goes from a setting that, other than the fact that there are fleets of airships, is pretty typical or standard, their own twist on Tolkien-inspired European medieval fantasy. Yeah. And they play with the technology some, and then we mentioned that there were tanks, but a spaceship and the ability to travel. And what happens very soon here now, which is that we will see a planet from outer space and its moon and then travel there. This was not something that was done in fantasy stories at the time. other Unless you, I mean, if you consider, you know, Star Wars fantasy, which I, for the most part, do, but it doesn't, you know, begin with knights and castles and armor and that kind of more traditional setting and then evolve into lasers. Like, the lasers are there from the beginning in Star Wars. Right, right, right. Yeah, I really enjoy blending those dichotomies of strictly medieval fantasy and strictly futuristic sci-fi and and playing around with those tropes other i mean other stories and games and and whatnot do it but not i think to the 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 extent the the final fantasy goes all in whereas some of those others just sort of dabble and i agree i think people who who have a complaint about this game suddenly going crazy with their with their space whales need to replay the game understanding the space whale is coming and we'll be able to see a lot of the foreshadowing that has come not only in this game, but in previous games. Right. And also the necessary tonal shift that had to come. I think that's something people oftentimes struggle with. You become comfortable with the tone of a thing, and then it shifts, and that can be off-putting. But when, like you said, you know it's coming, and you also know not only that, but where the series is going to go, with its science fiction. Unless you're one of these people that just absolutely cannot stand 7, 8, 10, 15. If you just, you need your traditional fantasy, I can understand that. That's the aesthetic you enjoy. But if you're trying to be objective about the quality of the thing, you're supposed to, as we've oftentimes talked about, let it carve out what it is. Judge it for whatever it's trying to be. And this was a clear first attempt, and I think a very successful one, by 
Hironobu Sakaguchi and his writing team to stretch the boundaries of the kinds of stories that they were allowed to tell, if you want to put it that way. What they could expect from their own audience. What the, how crazy they're allowed to get. I've heard people say this is where the game goes off the rails. But for me, if this is going off the rails, then that is what kind of defines Final Fantasy. You could answer the questions that have been presented up to this point in the story without all of this crazy stuff in the moon. Like, you could have just had a more traditional resolution to all of the conflicts. Golbez getting the crystals could have been just another analogy for a nuclear weapon, and you stop him from doing that. The end. Everyone goes back to their corners. What makes Final Fantasy something special is that it can take you somewhere you've never been before. It can combine elements you've never seen next to each other before. And then its themes and its philosophies get to be taken to the absolute extreme, which is what makes myths and legends so compelling in the first place. So our heroes get to the moon. first thing we see on the moon is we we run into the home of the Hummingway. Now we haven't mentioned this yet, but throughout Final Fantasy IV you'll run into these creatures called naming ways, and they will allow you to change the name of your characters if you so desire. They just look to me in the original Super Nintendo version like strangely shaped people. Uh, I didn't realize until later that they were meant to be rabbit people, and that was more strongly defined in, in the remakes. They were made to more obviously look like rabbit people. That is, as I understand it, a play on the idea that in Japanese folklore there isn't a man in the moon, there's a rabbit in the moon. And he, he appears to be making, I think, I think using a mortar and pestle, so making some kind of medicine. In any case, there are these rabbit people on the moon, they look kind of like their Moogle stand-ins, like maybe they didn't think they would be reusing Moogles. So we had the giant beavers in two, we had the Moogles in three, and the Hummingway in four, and then Moogles, of course, would reappear in six. But they can really only communicate via humming, except for uh, a few others who will sell you items and whatnot. Our heroes make their way through the lunar path into the Crystal Palace, and this is where we meet Fusoya, our last player character. Fusoya is a Lunarian, so he's not human, and his design is kind of wild. He's still got a head and arms and face and a big beard, but in all the Yoshitaka Amano art, all that sort of blends together, and he's sort of this ethereal creature who's maybe as much beard and robe as human, or as much beard and robe as flesh and blood. And even his sprite has this 
odd flowy quality to it. Yeah, I've always really loved this character design. We'll talk about it more when we get to the art section. But if you're going to introduce a main character that you want us to be drawn to this late into things after we've had a couple of paradigm shifts and we feel like we're closing, we've got to be closing in on the end of this crazy story. Now you introduce a new character. He better be as immediately awesome and compelling as Fusoya is. And he is powerful too. He casts the biggest spells there are in the game. Yeah, in a way, there's there's a way to, going back to a past episode, cynically look at him as a replacement for Tella as the game developers saying, hey, sorry we took away one of your best, most powerful magic users. We'll give you another one for the end of the game. But he's awesome in and of himself. So even if that was the intent, who cares? Fusoy is an awesome character. He is also Mr. Basil Exposition because he tells you what is going on here. We'll talk again. We've mentioned we're going to do a prophecy episode and we've talked about our prophesiers in the past, and I'll mention Bugenhagen again, but rarely does your prophesier who gives you all of this exposition join your party. So a mold that Fusoya gets to break, an interesting part of his character. So as I said, Fusoya is a Lunarian. He lives with his fellow Lunarians on the red moon, as opposed to the blue planet, as they differentiate the world and the moon. And he is watching over his brethren, all of whom are sleeping. He explains that they had come here using the Red Moon as their ship to colonize the Blue Planet, but when they saw that there were people living there, they decided, you know what, that's not cool. However, there was one Lunarian who wanted to wreck the place and remake the planet. It's kind of a Jor-El Zod dichotomy there. His name is Zemus. Everybody else, all the other Lunarians disagreed, and they all went to sleep, and Fusoya is the one watching over them. But Zemus found a way to affect people on the planet. He took over Golbez. He, he took over his mind and then through Golbez was able to take over Cain and was able to instigate the reign of terror of the four arch fiends. And the plan is to activate the Giant of Babel, which resides in the Tower of Babel. The Giant of Babel is our nuclear weapon analog here. It's going to wipe out the world's population. Fusoya further reveals that his younger brother, Kluya had gone to the Blue Planet to teach the natives, to, to help them develop society. So he's sort of our Prometheus figure here. He's bringing civilization to mankind. And in the meantime, he fathers two sons, one of whom is Cecil. So now we know that Cecil is half Lunarian. Again, it's a little bit of a crazy story, but puts into full context the most arguably most famous scene in the game when Cecil goes from Dark Knight to Paladin and that dark version of himself and the magic referring to him as son. Why is that happening? Well, Kluya was apparently a part of helping Cecil along this path, knowing that he needed to get to this point. So it always had to come to this crazy story, if you want to call it that. Another side quest you can do on the moon here is you can make your way to the Cave of Bahamut. There you will fight a lot of big, bad monsters. There's some fun items. The Genji items are here. Gloves, shield, armor, and helm. And then you can fight Bahumet, the god of summons. And if you defeat Bahumet, Rydia is able to then summon him.
So, knowing what is coming for the world, our heroes go back to the Blue Planet, and the Giant of Babel has already been awakened. The peoples of the Blue Planet, including the dwarves, all the various kingdoms, and all our party members who are not dead, so Edward, Sig, Yang, Pollum, and Porum, have gotten together for a counterattack. So, the airships, the tanks, all our heroes are fighting against this giant, this giant mechanized creature that is trying to destroy the, the population of the world. If you are looking for singular reasons to argue why, even though this game has already been remade and adapted, but still could use a TV series or a movie or a full modern age remake with full graphics and the whole thing, it's this scene. Who doesn't want to cool. see all the tanks, all the different races, your party members, the the giant. This I want to see in full blockbuster mode. And it happens all while you're returning to the Earth right. from the moon. This is the definition of epic. So our heroes are able to ram one of their airships with a drill on the front into the giant of Babel uh, and then make their way inside. There's a, a fun little dungeon crawl here, at the end of which we have to fight the elemental lords, the four arch fiends, again. And then finally attack the CPU of of the giant of Babel. And defeating that defeats the giant. Yeah, you fight a computer. So Final Fantasy did not become science fiction-y with the seventh entry. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So once the giant of Babel has been stopped, Golbez once again confronts the party. But now we have Fusoya, and Fusoya is able to break the mind control on Golbez. Zemus, our sort of Zod-type character, if we want a Superman parallel, has been controlling Golbez this whole time, just as Golbez was controlling Kane. And this, this is when Golbez remembers that he has a little brother. Uh, we get a little flashback, and we learn that their mother, Cecilia, died in childbirth. And his father, Kluya, was then killed by a mob of humans. Ungrateful bastards. Yeah. So then, with Theodore and Cecil, thus orphaned, Zemus is able to manipulate the child Theodore and turn him into Golbez. So it's... Cecil, I am your brother. Yes, and Cecil, I am your brother. So a nice and little Star Wars parallel. Family member, Dark Knight, part of the family, actually. But additionally, this moment strikes at something because now Cecil has an existential crisis, not just in recognizing, oh, my gosh, I've been fighting my brother this whole time, because you can maybe get over that pretty quickly, recognizing sure. mind control and all of I, that. I got over fighting my brother real easily. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, not, not a problem, right? But <laughs> he recognizes that he very easily could have followed that same path. And we talked about this in Final Fantasy II. This is a much deeper, more nuanced, just straight-up question he asks out loud. Could I have been manipulated into doing all of the terrible things that Golbez has done? Was it just that Zemus chose him? and not me. We all know he had that dark side of himself right. that he's he, still yeah. in some ways battling with. 
And he did, in fact, do some awful things at the ultimate behest of Zemus. Zemus was controlling Golbez, who was controlling the Archfiends. The Archfiend of Water ordered Cecil the Dark Knight to go to Mycidia and steal the crystal. He ordered Cecil and Cain to go to the town of Summoners and commit genocide. So right. after a fashion, he did, he, he was manipulated in a similar way. And there's no way he can completely let himself off the hook, even though his friends try to say, no, you're ultimately a good person, because then that would mean condemning his brother entirely to, well, you're an evil person. And in this particular moment, there's a strong argument that Goldbez, while they say, you know, yeah, he was more naturally inclined, he was kind of going to go that way anyway. So that's why they were that Zemus was able to manipulate him into doing these things. Cecil would like to believe there's some good in his brother, and in order to believe that, he has to know that there is some, if, if we can say evil, or at least darkness, in him. So, Fusoya and Golbez leave for the moon, intending to fight and kill Zemus. Cain, who is now completely freed of mind control because Golbez, or Theodore, is now completely freed of mind control, helps the others escape the collapsing giant, He's having his own problems here, as we were just talking about existential crises. He feels that he is unworthy to help our heroes. Cecil and Rosa, as his friends, convince him that it's fine. Edge, eh, not not really having it, but, you know. Yeah, Edge, in fact, still not trusting Kane, and he can understand why. Look, man, we've made this turn a couple of times. At some point, you're like a WWE character. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But then Kane turns and very bluntly says, if I do turn again, you know, not just literally turn my body to talk to you, <laughs> as I just said, but if, if anything should happen, I give you permission to kill me. And without missing a beat, Edge just says, yeah, all right, let's go. <laughs> yeah. And that strikes at the heart of one of our other central themes in this game that we've talked about a little bit here and there and we'll probably drive home a bit more in a minute but the family that this cast of characters becomes and how they have to do it over some dramatic differences in ideology and where they come from and what's going on and this moment gets back to that as we've talked about from the very beginning the larger threat as a symbol for not letting yourself succumb to tribalism. They killed my family, so I kill your family. Again, that's sort of the motivation behind Golbez, right? They were able to manipulate him more because he was old enough to remember his father being murdered. And maybe that's the biggest difference between him and Cecil is that he was old enough to remember it and therefore has a little bit more of a motivation to be tribal when what our heroes need and this in this moment edge and kane do it beautifully so quickly is to put all their stuff aside get past it go to the moon and fight the evil demon who's trying to mind control the entire race <laughs> right so they get on the lunar whale and prepare to go to the moon but before they do cecil does the thing that i almost dislike him for he the are we've oh, got I Kane, just like him Edge, for it. I hate Cecil, this. Rosa, and Rydia. And he tells Rosa and Rydia, sorry girls, this is a boys only trip. 
and he makes them leave. And I'm like, fork that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and we we mentioned this a little bit an episode or two ago, I think, that there's some some male chauvinism going on in here. But heroes that they are, Rosa and Rydia only pretend to leave because you know what? We don't we're not going to have this argument with you, you D-bag. Right now, we're gonna, we got to go to the moon, so we're just going to pretend to leave. And then when we get to the moon, surprise, we're heroes too, you putts. Yeah, and to get back to one of our larger themes in the podcast, we've said before, a depiction of a thing is not an endorsement of a thing. I think you could rightfully have criticized this game for being chauvinist if it ended at Cecil saying, no, you can't come, and that was it. The fact that the women do show back up and say, you know, to hell with whatever it is you said, shows to me that they're making a comment on that kind of chauvinism. They're showing that their character, who from that particular time, it would make sense for him to be that way. And we've just got done talking about all the flaws that Cecil still has as a person. He is by no means perfect. But this game is not endorsing those flaws. And Rosa and, Cecil, uh, Rosa and Rydia show up, and it's an awesome moment. So our heroes get to the moon, they fight through another dungeon, the lunar subterrain, and then they get to the end, and Golbez and Fusilia have already defeated Zemus. So, you know, end of game, roll credits. Yeah. Except, wait, no! Zemus is reborn! Much like the Emperor of Final Fantasy II, Zemus of Final Fantasy IV is, is sort of reborn in this, through his hatred after, after a fashion. The, the dark emperor but there is no light Zemus there's only dark hateful Zemus so there's some back and forth about you know whether or not they're powerful enough and Zemus now called Zeromus is sort of able to defeat them before the in-game fight even happens and then we get a, a really cool scene where the party members who didn't make it plus the dwarves plus some of the uh, the council women from Troya plus the Mycidians are standing at the top of the Tower of Prayers, and through their good vibes, they're able to weaken Zeramos, and then we can have the actual in-game fight. Yeah, that's pretty cool too, and something we would see shown in a similar way in Final Fantasy X. And we talked about this in the very first game, why it's important that all of the NPCs and the people you meet in the towns throughout the game become important to you, because that's who you're saving the world for and you don't always need to have them come together like it would become cliche if at the end of every final fantasy game all the people of the world rallied but in four and ten i think they find really great ways to yeah. do that singing that song in ten man that's pretty killer like that's i still get chills thinking about <clears throat> that so then our heroes are able to defeat zeramus and that is the end of the adventure part there is a nice little there, there are some optional dungeons that have some minor storyline impacts so i'll just mention them briefly in the original game you could only take those five we've already mentioned in the uh the game boy advance version you can go back and take other characters and when you do there's uh, an extra dungeon on the moon where you can each character gets their own little trial where you can get even better weapons to fight an even bigger optional boss later and mount ordeals gets another secondary thing that you can go to and, and get some extra gear. Both of which are, you know, fun little additions, but not really storyline relevant. The end of the story involves everyone going home and not going back to their corners necessarily, but going back to their individual kingdoms and basically taking over. 
Fusoya and Golbez decide that they're going to watch over the Lunarians and that the Red Moon's going to go away. Cecil does forgive Golbez for his crimes and refers to him as his brother, which is nice. Everyone else goes back to the Blue Planet. The Moon heads off into space. Edward becomes the king of Damsayan. Edge becomes the king of Eblen. Yang and his wife Sheila become the new king and queen of Fabul. Cain does not become the king of anything. Instead, he sort of self-exiles. He goes to Mount Ordeals to train to become even more awesome. And then we have Cecil and Rosa's wedding. And this is the last shot. Cecil and Rosa become the king and queen of Baron. And in the DS version, Sid crowns Cecil king, which is interesting to me because in real life, the crowning of kings was usually done by a religious person. For really important kings and queens, it would be the Pope. In Lord of the Rings, it's Gandalf who crowns Aragorn. Aragorn. So, it, you know, it's the Pope, or Gandalf the White. But, no, for, for the King of Baron, it's the head mechanic. So does that mean that the fleet master of Baron is a stand-in for religion? Is science a stand-in for religion in Baron? I think that's a perfect symbol to finish on that... This whole game has been about a transition from a society built on faith and belief and magic and superstition to one that's going to be built on science and reason. Now, it's obviously a world where monsters and magic actually exist, so you're not going to get rid of those things. But as we just talked about, it's reflected in its shift from one genre to the other, but that's also the story that they're trying to tell, is that the world is going from a place where science wasn't really a thing to one where it's going to be largely governed by science. And I also think they probably just did that because it's the father figure character for sure. Cecil. But... Yeah, I, I do think his role as the engineer is important, and that is the one of the central themes of the game. So how about some big ideas? We've talked a lot already about coming together to face a bigger threat. I think that is especially exemplified in that big fight between the various nations of the world, the various peoples of the world against the giant of Babel. Is there anything else you want to say about that particular theme and how it applies to Final Fantasy IV? Yeah, just to run through a list really quick, we just talked about all the people of the world having to come together to help our heroes, so that's, again, a unifying thing. You talk about Rosa having to team up with all of these crazy people, some of whom have tried to kill her at different points throughout the plot. Rydia having to go on an adventure with the guys that killed her mother, the people of the different kingdoms, Edge versus Kane, Golbez versus Cecil, Zemus versus Fusoya, them being Lunarians who are fighting against each other, that they don't agree on the way to go about eventually populating Earth, the idea that they were going to wait until the humans had evolved enough so that they could coexist, but that they didn't want to take over via conquest, except one of them did. And, the, you know, so it's all about how unifying and togetherness is better than aggression and violence in pursuit of power. And 
while we've seen that story in a lot of ways before, I don't know that we've ever seen it quite like this before or since. And I think that's one of the reasons why this game is as celebrated as it is. Our other big question then, I think that leads really well into a point that I've wanted to make for a while, which is about the value of speculative fiction, whether we want to talk about fantasy or science fiction, where those lines blur. I think there's an interesting question to ask, why set your story in this world? I think a lot of people who don't get why those of us who are into this stuff are into this stuff, they say, why do you, it's not real. It's not realistic. Why can't you just watch a story that's based on real people doing things that people can actually do? Why do you need to hide behind magic and monsters? And isn't that even just an escape? How can that ever be more engaging on important ideas than stories that take place in the real world? And I think Final Fantasy IV is a fantastic exhibit for those who want to argue on the merits of quality thematic storytelling via speculative fiction because they are able to hit on these themes that we've talked about some other really interesting stuff about the nature of human evolution we just talked about going from faith and belief to more science oriented all of the ways in which the characters interact and develop but i think about for example Game of Thrones. I'm not going to spoil it, but for anyone who's seen it, the revelation about Hodor is the kind of payoff you can't get unless there's some crazy, weird, impossible stuff at play. The revelations to me about Cecil and Golbez and the Lunarians, in particular Zemus's plot and how dangerous that type of thing can be was only possible through all of this craziness and something that the genre bending even required. How many times have we seen like a cool Star Trek story where they discover a primitive civilization and then, you know, the number one goal is you don't mess with that civilization, right? Right. In this world, first, we become deeply attached to that civilization, to that world, to their ideas, their customs, their way of life. And then we recognize that they are seen as but a speck of dust, a, a tiny plot point for this grand Zemus character. And it's a great way to put existence into a certain kind of perspective. It makes you think about the smallness of our own world or maybe of our own existence these are some big ideas for a super nintendo game released in the early 90s well i think all of that is fantastic but i do want to pose you a question on the grounds of why a speculative fiction story might be preferable to a regular character drama because they could have done a lot of that without necessarily going to the moon so why is it important and I'm not saying this because I actually don't think it is important. I'm a big spec fiction fan. But why is it important, do you think, to go ahead and have 
these kinds of stories, why not just go ahead and have it be that Golbez was, uh, I mean, Golbez can be Cecil's brother, that's great, but why does it have to be an alien who's controlling him? Why can't it just be somebody else who's on the planet? Why do we have to even go to the mind control route? Why can't we just have it be that he was emotionally manipulated? Why are we trying to hold speculative fiction as this other interesting thing as opposed to something like what's a good character drama, West Wing, or, or something along those lines? I'm really glad you asked that question, and my answer to it might be a little bit favorable to my own framing of it, but first of all, I, I think you absolutely can accomplish some very similar things, as you mentioned, in a show like West Wing. So that, that's it's not to say that one is necessarily better than the other, but I think there is a reason that our most ancient stories, for example, almost always involve these elements of things that are impossible because it allows you to strip away that question. We've talked a lot on this podcast about plot being king and my issue with people that think if you tear apart a plot, you've done some critical analysis. And I think it comes down to this particular point. If your story is rooted in realism, that means it all falls apart if anything that happens couldn't have happened. I can critique your story and say, well, you can't do that. That's not realistic. And now your whole thing kind of falls apart. Whereas in speculative fiction, it is part of the conceit that this can't happen. You get to sort of get past that. You accept, and some people won't, and that's why they don't enjoy the movies, but if you're going to enjoy Star Wars, you accept that the Force is what it is. And it's not that it doesn't have any rules, it's just that it's obviously impossible to happen in the real world. Same thing with magic, whatever we want to talk about. And the reason why I think so many of the stories, going back to the Odyssey and King Arthur and Merlin and all of this stuff, the reason why you do that is because it allows the themes to then come to the forefront. For example, we do this in, I say we as if I actually practice philosophy. I went to school for it, but <laughs> I don't know how much philosophy I do in baseball writing. But when you're challenging utilitarianism, right? The idea that you just want to do the action that's the most good for the most number of people. You then challenge that idea with something that's never going to happen. You say, well, what if you're on a train and right. there's one person on one side stuck to the track and there's 30 people on the other side. But on the one side where it's the one person, it's your mother, right? And you're like, wait, what? That's I've never not... liked this thought experiment, but whatever. <laughs> but what that thought experiment is intended to do is get past what we know, what we arrogant humans are so certain that we know can happen or can be. Get past that. Get That's not even the point. The point is... How far does your ideology actually go, or is it just based on your own limited perspective? It's the reason why the first interracial kiss took place on Star Trek, because right. there was enough separation there that people almost didn't realize they were looking at a reflection of their own racism until it hit them in the face. Right. And I think speculative fiction, it's not that the other stuff can't do that, but it allows you to let themes like that and ideas like that. I think Final Fantasy IV is a great example where once you're flying to the moon on the whale, you're either with this or you're not with this. 
but it allows that mind control. Like I said, that twist on the theme where one incredibly powerful being that you've never even considered could exist is actually controlling all of the events of the world while you guys are all caught up in the importance of killing each other over different countries or different family ties. You don't even realize you're all being manipulated by this one being. And I think while that's clearly impossible, at least to our understanding of the way the world works, it's a remarkably interesting theme that allows us to ask questions about who we really are, about what we really believe, not just in our day-to-day lives, but fundamentally as people that sometimes speculative fiction can at least get at in a unique way. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. Join us next time when we color with water, rename characters, and actively time battles. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that if you do not want to wait for the next episode, we've got about 50 more all the way through the end of Final Fantasy VII recorded and available for you at just $1 at patreon.com slash ffweekly. We also just launched a new project, Studio Ghibli Weekly, which you'll get access to as well when you sign up for the Patreon. Set up just like this show, except we'll be going through Studio Ghibli movies instead of Final Fantasy games. So. We hope you all can join us for that. And if you're interested in more video game talk, more Final Fantasy stuff, comic book movies, Star Wars, a weekly professional wrestling podcast, or any of the sports stuff that I do, swing on by patreon.com slash DC Productions.